Have you ever wished that you could just start over? Maybe in life in general, maybe with a job or a relationship with someone, maybe start over with your marriage, or maybe go back to school and try harder on that subject or that degree that you gave up on, but you actually loved, or buy that house you didn't buy 20 years ago, or not buy that house that you bought 20 years ago. Or maybe that kid of yours who's grown up and having trouble now, do you wish you had given them different advice back in high school? I'm not talking about normal regrets. We all have things that we could do much better if we had a second chance, but we understand that things in life rarely turn out perfect. My point is that many of us have things in our lives that we've handled so poorly that have turned out so badly that we dearly wish we could go back to that point in time and do it over. Sometimes there's an incident or something we've done which seems to be the start of things really going wrong, personally or financially, professionally, or in some other fashion. We wish that whatever happened could just be unhappened. However, we wouldn't want to go through everything we've gone through since that fateful moment when things went down the wrong path. A lot of us look back and we go, well, redoing or undoing one terrible thing would be fine, but we don't want to relive all those nasty times we went through in our 20s or 30s or 40s. We'd like to be very selective in the things that are undone. Just fix that old problem and continue on from where we are now. I can tell you about one thing that I'd like to redo, a decision I'd like to undo. I waited until I was an older man to get my eyes fixed. I had diseased corneas, and I wish I had had them replaced with transplants many years before I did. I made a decision to put off getting transplants in my eyes when I was a young guy. My cornea started going bad early in high school, and by the time I was 26, my vision was noticeably reduced. But I waited until I was middle-aged to get my first cornea replaced. And in those intervening years... I spent decades not driving much at all and having Wendy, my wife, do all the driving whenever we went somewhere. She drove me to work. I listened to books instead of reading them, which takes a lot more time. And for me, it made understanding the books a lot harder. There were a lot of subtle things that I missed out on, like the beauty of a full moon or falling snow. I couldn't recognize which kid was mine out there on the soccer field as they ran wildly around chasing a ball I couldn't see. Now, I don't want to redo all the bad things that happened in those intervening years. I just want to undo a decision I made long ago. Selective redo. Just decide what to undo anytime you want. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Let's look at the book of Revelation. 
Revelation was written by a man who was called John of Patmos because he was exiled as a prisoner on the island of Patmos off the coast of what's modern Turkey now. This is not the John who wrote a gospel. Revelation is written in a much less literate and very different Greek than the gospel. We don't know anything else about John of Patmos other than that he wrote Revelation. He must have been well-known at the time. He must have been a Christian leader and was cast onto this island because he was a threat to the Roman Empire. John of Patmos was concerned with two moral issues when he wrote Revelation. First, Christians were under great threat and had to be courageous and willing to die for their faith. Second, there would be a final judgment and we would all need to live according to Christ's teachings if we want to avoid the second death, that is, being cast for eternity into the lake of fire. Revelation is about the ultimate destruction of evil at the end of time, and more importantly, the incredible final blessing that all of those who have remained faithful to God will receive. Revelation begins with the text of letters written by John of Patmos to seven early churches in Asia Minor, or again, modern Turkey, including Ephesus, the author's home city. These letters tell the churches that while they've done many good things, they have some evil beliefs and evil actions that need to be corrected. Then there's a vision from heaven where Jesus, the Lamb of God, is seen as sacrificing himself for all humans. Next, seven seals are opened. These seals present powerful symbolism in the form of horses of various colors. This part essentially tells us that horrible plagues will attack humanity because of its corruption. Next, there are seven trumpets. Each of these is a plague. Then there's a woman, a dragon, and a child. Importantly, dragons were a common literary characteristic of ancient Jewish and pre-monotheistic literature. The dragon is probably Satan, and it is at war with the people of God. Then there's a beast from the sea. This beast has seven heads, probably representing seven major emperors of Rome. The beast has received its authority not from God, but from Satan. Next comes a statement that Babylon, which is what people of the time sometimes called Rome, will be attacked by God. This message is delivered by three angels. After this, there are seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. These bowls represent God's final judgment against evil and against the Roman Empire. Then the whore of Babylon, that is Rome, is symbolized as a beast with seven heads. Then Babylon falls. The Roman Empire falls. There is rejoicing in heaven. A rider on a white horse arrives. This is Jesus Christ who has come to conquer all evil. Satan is then cast into the lake of fire for a thousand years which represents infinity. The dead, including all of us, are judged, and the books written about each of us and our lives 
are read aloud. There is now a new heaven and a new earth which is purified. We see the new Jerusalem in all its glory. Sin has been erased. Earth is now a paradise. God has destroyed evil and God will lift up in glory all of those who've lived by God's laws. Here's something from near the end of Revelation. I've abbreviated it. The final judgment has happened, and God is introducing a new earth where death will be no more and there will be no more pain. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God will bless us in a very special way during the end times. But we shouldn't forget that each day of our lives, God blesses us as believers. And while our daily blessings pale in compared to what is to come, it is still the most powerful thing that happens anywhere on this planet on any given day. God's blessing empowers and frees us like nothing else can. God's blessing is far more powerful than a billion dollars or a string of mansions stretching across the country or having every person in the world worship us as a celebrity or a wealthy business person. Yes, on any day of our lives, as people of faith, we can walk in a new heaven and on a new earth. We can let all former things go away. All things will become new. We will walk in a new Jerusalem if we only let ourselves accept the full impact of God's grace. The new Jerusalem is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. It is described as being so huge and so tall that it probably couldn't fit on earth as we know it. The citizens of this city are, as us, the followers of Christ. They are us. It is, of course, a symbolic city, one that signifies the place where we all can live anytime we want. Now, as long as we're on this planet, the world around us will not change. The events of our past will not change. I will not suddenly have memories of perfect vision dating back to when I was in my late 20s. But spiritually, it is indeed a selective redo. I can undo bad moral and spiritual decisions any time I want. We stepped off the right path. We took a wrong turn. We might have done it because of societal pressure, people telling us that only unsophisticated people believe in God, or maybe something went wrong in our life and it caused us to become jaded and lose faith and perhaps become cruel or selfish. At a time when we should have turned to God, we turned our back on God. God is the only being who can totally, 100%, forgive without reservation. 
God holds nothing back. God has no reservations when the past is forgotten, when something is undone. In contrast, when we as humans forgive, fragments of that thing that caused us pain still remain. We always have a tiny dark spot in our hearts where that person hurt us. We find that we can never truly let go of the past when someone asks us to forgive them, to pretend that something never happened, but not with God. That's why every moment of our lives is like a mini end times. At any time we need, we can get a total undo. Consider Psalm 103. This is a magnificent poem of thanksgiving where the blessings of God are praised. It expresses thanks for God fulfilling every need we have. It talks of God's grace, mercy, and love. An interesting thing to notice about the Psalms, and especially this one, is that although they were written hundreds of years before the Gospels were written, They reflect much of what we believe as Christians. The Psalms tie the Old and the New Testaments together beautifully. The Psalms were used heavily in ancient Israelite and Jewish services, just as our Gospels and the Psalms are used heavily in our services. Jesus brought us a direct connection with the same God as the chosen people of the Old Testament, but with the New Covenant, God is no longer an impersonal being. God is within us, present in the Holy Spirit, who constantly and eternally dwells within us. Here's a verse from our psalm. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is one of the most quoted lines in the psalms, and in fact in the Bible as a whole. When we're forgiven, when we're able to selectively go back into the past and undo our mistakes, God sends them so far to the east that they're infinitely far from the west. And God sends them to the west until they're infinitely far from the east. They are gone, out of any dimension that we can perceive, and out of the heart of God. We can restart in a new Jerusalem. We have the power to call upon God's grace at any moment. We can leave the past behind. This power can impact us in far more than just abstract spiritual ways. I cannot go back in time and get my eyes fixed when I was a young man, but I can go back and let go of all the spiritual mistakes I've made since then. This allows me to see the joy I have had in life without having it colored by the times I walked away from God, by the times I knowingly did things I knew were wrong. Physical blindness is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. I'd like to look at a quote from the first letter written by John, and probably not the John of Patmos and not the John who wrote the gospel. It's an eloquent essay written in the form of a letter. Here's the quote. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I no longer walk in darkness physically. 
Anytime I want, I can stop walking in darkness spiritually. Remember that at any time, at any moment, you have that opportunity to step back into the kingdom of God where you were meant to be. Wash away all that's happened, all that you shouldn't have done, and then walk into the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. <laughs>